All right, John three twenty-two to 36, God's word says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and, and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Verse 24, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And then they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, hear this, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this is beautiful, therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes uh, from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from a heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Imagine, if you would, with me this morning that you are at a wedding. Uh, the best man is just made a speech of goodwill towards the bride and the groom, wishing them the best elevating the, the groom and his commitment to love and serve his bride, outlining how he is the guy indeed to, to do the job, the best husband to this fortunate bride could find. He finishes lifting the glass, the toast to the bride and groom, he proclaims. A smile of joy at the thought of his, his friends on this beautiful day being joined together. The, the glasses clang throughout the room as happiness and laughter fill the air. But then a voice from someone in the crowd, a friend of the best man who just finished the toast, and a few of his buddies, they, they begin to speak out and talk. They speak over this, this joyous moment of the hour. They, they call attention, the attention of the wedding guest and the party. They say this, but, but we really think the, the best man is the man of the hour. He's the one to carry the task. He's the one that will love this woman well. Now, that would be an awkward scene, wouldn't it? What does the best man do? He shakes his head no in disapproval. Motions for the friends who he's known for a long time. He's been through thick and thin with them. Would you guys just sit down? He explains this. Again, speaking truth. This, this day is not my day. In fact, this is a joyful day for me because I get to take a small part of this special day to point all of you to the joy now complete in the groom coming to get his bride, to love and serve her, to love her sacrificially and even unto death. 
Then he says this, I must fade into the background and he must now take center stage. The best man sits down, looks on to the scene with joyful eyes and a smile as the bride and groom take to the dance floor for their first dance. What a beautiful day. Pointing the guest and his friends to the center of attention, the bride and the groom. That's what John the Baptist is giving us a picture of here. He's doing the right thing. He's speaking the truth. He's pointing. that His role was to point people to who? To Jesus. And that's what this passage is all about. John, uh, John the Baptist summarizes this scene in our main idea. Our main idea this morning is actually uh, a verse from the passage. Uh, John summarizes the, the main idea of the passage well when he says this in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. The goal of our life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We accomplish this most clearly when we make the name of the Lord famous. He is the famous one. As we carry out our work to humbly fade to the background and show every person we come in contact with the fame of Jesus, the saving power of Christ The word must in this, he must increase, but I must decrease. This word must here, it gives us, it's a a present word, okay? In, In the original language, it was written in the present tense, and it's active. What does that mean? It's presently happening, and it's actively happening, that Jesus is increasing, and we are decreasing, and that is a good thing. In other words, we could say uh, this verse in this way. He will increase and we will decrease. This is the Lord's will and should be the center point of every endeavor we strive towards within our mission as followers of Jesus, within the kingdom of God, our proclamation of Christ as king overall. But we come to a problem in this passage. There's a problem. The problem is this, it's jealousy and short-sightedness. It's the jealousy and short-sightedness of John's disciples. Okay, not John the Baptist, but John's followers. You see, if if we're honest, likely we we struggle with this calling to decrease as the Lord increases. Why? Because we have a tendency towards self-centeredness. We have, we have a tendency towards elevating our wants and needs and desires above the will of God. We too are jealous, but some of you in the room, you may object. No, I'm not. But I'll tell you this, our hearts are, are bent in this direction, a direction that glorifies and elevates our wants and needs above the will of God for our life. Above God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply Above his mandate to go, therefore, and make disciples and to love the Lord Jesus through obedience to his holy word. Moreover, we too are are short-sighted. We don't see the benefit of, of, of the immediate forfeit of worldly comfort for the benefit of the kingdom of God, his mission. We're short-sighted in this. I would say this is a huge issue right now in this day and age, in this present time. We're short-sighted through our worry and anxiety. Is anybody worried or anxious about something this morning? I know I am. I get real anxious every time I click that gas pump next to my car, right? Is is it ever going to stop? The numbers just go and go and go and go. I'm kind of glad it's not like the old school ones that used to tick every time they come around because that would just drive you nuts. 
There, we can agree, though, there's a lot of worry and anxiety. Many of us are tired. I went in, this is just, it's kind of one of those first world problems. Like, I changed the oil in my car yesterday, and I go to take the, the used oil back to the auto zone to dump it off. And for those of you who change your own oil, I mean, it's just all, no matter how much you close the thing down, it just, it's going to leak everywhere. And so I go over to O'Reilly first, go walk, you know, haul this thing in there, the oil all over myself. I get all the way back there, and the tank's full. Okay. Leave, get back in, drive down to AutoZone, go walking all the way in there, the tank's full, right? First world problems. But, man, I got so worried and anxious and, and riled up over that one thing, over that little minor thing. And I'd say we're all in, in edge this way in this day and age. It's, it's, it's the price of gas. It's walking into the grocery store and the things that you want not being there. There's a lot of worry and anxiety within our lives. We trust the Lord in, in all of this and in where we're at at this point in time. Because we know this truth. The Word of God clearly teaches that Christ has victory over the world. The Word of God teaches this, that He put His mockers, His enemies to open shame at the cross. And His Word teaches this, that Jesus has the ultimate victory and He will make that known upon His second coming. Jesus is coming back. But in this present passage, we see a problem of jealousy and short-sightedness in these first few verses says this in verse 22 to 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Ainon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Notice the focus of John's disciples. They're initially, like the context of their conversation with this certain Jew that they're talking to, we don't know who that person is, is purification. They're talking about purification. But then, as they see the people gathering to Christ and his disciples along the way, the, the conversation shifts, the focus shifts from, from purification to the amount of people going to Jesus and his disciples for baptism. I, there's a sense of jealousy there of Jesus. They're jealous. Just some, a point of clarification, because we'll get to this next week in, in chapter 4. Jesus isn't in fact baptizing himself here. It's his disciples. It clarifies that in John 4, 2. His disciples are baptizing. But, but the key statement from John's disciples are, is this, and all are going to him. There's, a, there's a, an air of jealousy in their voice. It's obvious in John's response back to his followers that their tone and jealousy were evident. It may not be evident to us, but we can tell in his response that their, their tone must have been one of kind of contempt of what was going on over there and jealousy. 
He too unravels the problem presented in their lack of understanding of his mission. That's John the Baptist. And the mission of God in Christ. He's going to bring clarity to the situation. You see, in this moment, their flesh, their sinful flesh, that's John's disciples, overtakes the good and joyful thing that is occurring. They should be praising God that many are going to Christ and being baptized. In real time, actively, John the Baptist is decreasing. We're seeing this now. He's decreasing while the fame of Jesus is increasing, and yet John's followers are jealous of Jesus' ministry and short-sighted in the ultimate goal of God's love. The ultimate goal of God's love is this, to seek and to save the lost. And they're seeing this happen in real time right in front of their face. And so how then does the Baptist respond to their shortcoming. This is our lessons for this morning. Number one, this is how he responds. Uh, The Baptist brings clarity on gifting. The Baptist brings clarity on on gifting. I like to think of of John as the last of the Old Testament prophets. Nearly uh, 400 years had passed since God had spoken through a prophet. Uh, John, in Luke 1.15, before he's even born, is called this great in the sight of the Lord. He was entrusted as as the messenger, as as the prophet that was to come calling in the wilderness, to call people to Jesus, to point the way. The one to make way for this, even though he was great, he was making way for the ultimate greatness that we find in Jesus. John, in response to jealousy and and short-sightedness of his own disciples, recognizes this truth. He says this simply uh, in this way in verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. He He realizes where the good gifts he has, where they come from. They come from above. That's the idea here. The Baptist gives us, gives us a beautiful truth. Every good gift comes from God. And this includes our gifting and calling in the Christian life. So the material blessings that we have, but also the rich spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And so as a result of that, if, if the gift comes from somebody else, there's, just, there's no room, there's no margin for jealousy in the Christian life. There's no margin for for jealousy of one another and also this jealousy of the Lord's fame. Because every gift comes from the Lord, especially the gift of redemption. It is from God. And also our our gifting as, as individuals, it is from God. Again, John was called great before, before he was even born. He was gifted by God in the womb for the task and calling on his life. We too, though, family, are, are gifted by the Lord. Everything we have is because of the Lord's gracious provision from above. And, w- and when we lose sight, we must heed the warning of James. I think James hits on this a bit in, in verse 15 to 17. He says this, then desire, when he's using this word desire there, he's meaning like fleshly sinful desires. When your sinful desires, when, he says when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. Do you get the illustration he's using here? It's something from within now coming out, it's conceived and it's, it's birthing sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth this. It's the consequence of sin, death. 
He says this, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Underline this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Where does it come from? He tells us, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation. That's good news. That word is good news. What does that mean? God is constant. It says, or shadow due to change. What does that mean? God is unchanging. That's a truth that I, I hold near to my heart, especially in this day and age, because things are changing all around us rapidly. To the world, what, what, is, the, what is truth? It's an ever-changing thing, but yet the source of all truth, James says right here, there is no variation or shadow due to change. He never changes. He's constant. You always know how God is going to be. Every good thing granted us is in accordance with the Lord's gracious provision, material and spiritual. And so as followers of Jesus, we, we know this truth that we, as if we are followers of Christ, if we have placed our faith and confidence in the finished work of Jesus, we are given this. We are given spiritual gifts to share with one another. And we are entrusted with, with gifts to share with one another, to serve and love one another and the Lord. The Baptist gift here is we know he's a prophet. He's a, he's a truth speaker. He's a pointer to the ministry of Jesus. He was a gifted teacher because he takes uh, this sinful jealousy and he turns it around and he points them back to Jesus and he, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. What takes me an hour to unpack, he says in one sentence. He was a gifted teacher and that he, he taught truth, the most important truth, which is that, again, he must decrease and the fame of Jesus must increase. Paul tells us of gifting also in Ephesians. Ephesians uh, 4, 7 says this, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are each given spiritual gifts according to the measure of Christ's gift. Christ, Jesus gives you that gift. I mean, can you, can you imagine if you gave your brother or sister a gift and they just said, I don't really like that one. I want that gift over there. That's what we do with the measure of Christ's gift given to us sometimes. Either by being envious of jealous of other people's gifting or by just not using it. By neglecting it. Just prior to this verse... In Ephesians, Paul says that we are one body. He's referring to the church. Okay, the church is this. It's Christians all around the globe. Those who have placed their faith and confidence in Jesus are part of the church. We capitalize the C at the beginning of that church because it's the body of Christ. Okay, the body of Christ is not just here at North Bullet Christian Church. It's all around the globe. We are in, in that body, in that body, we're each gifted not to quarrel in jealousy of one another, but to do this, to glorify Christ and serve and love one another. And so I want to instruct you, don't get sucked into jealousy and short-sightedness in your gifting. 
Do not become envious or jealous of another's good gift. Ranging from this, from their material blessing, we can get sucked into envy, can't we? And jealousy, looking at what other people have. I wish I had that. The opposite of jealousy, in a way, is, is being content. It's interesting that we read that passage in Philippians at the beginning. Speaking about, about contentment and gain and loss. It's being joyful in, in what the Lord has given you. And we have to, in, in America family, we have to do this. We have to fight the tendency toward envy and jealousy in, in this culture because we are a materialistic culture. We are. If unchecked, we, we can quickly become consumed with jealousy because of this, because of someone else's blessing, because of someone else's financial windfall, the new toy that they have. Don't get sucked in. Push back against it. In every gift and season of life, be content with the good gifts the Lord has granted you, what he's given you right now in this season. He's been good to you. Number two, the Baptist brings clarity on his role. The Baptist brings clarity on his role. John the Baptist is, is not the Messiah. And this is an, an important issue in, in the present passage, but also this is an issue that will kind of fester all the way through the early church. In the early days of Christianity, there remained followers of John the Baptist who needed to be corrected and pointed to Christ. I think that actually might be some of the purpose as to why John the Apostle included these sections of history about John the Baptist was to correct uh, these disciples that still had not come to the true Savior, Jesus Christ. They kept following after John the Baptist's ways. This is not the doing of, of John the Baptist. He's been clear all throughout these first three chapters, right? I am not the Christ. I mean, he literally pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says this in verses 28 to 30. Again, reiterating, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said. So it's in the past, like I've already said this to you, but just for clarity, I'm going to say it to you again. I am not the Christ. But I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. What does John do? He keeps pointing them to Jesus and pointing them to Jesus over and over and over again. Family, that's our task also. That's my task as a pastor. It's not that you would look to me for hope, but that you would look to Christ for hope. Because if you're looking to me, I'm only going to disappoint you. Just ask my wife. I disappoint her all the time. I will let you down. I promise you that. Look to Christ as your only hope. John is, is saying here, let me, let me be very clear. There, there's no room for jealousy and short-sightedness. He's saying, I'm not the Messiah. I must decrease because this is God's plan and my role. That's what he's telling us. And in fact, it's, it's not just his role to decrease and he's just kind of taking it and sulking, but he's saying that it's his joy, that his joy is complete. That's a powerful statement. His joy is complete, that the groom has come to take his bride. Jesus now takes center stage. 
John brings to light an, an illustration of a wedding. In this time, in this culture, the friend of the, of the bridegroom, so the groom, the friend of the groom would guard the bride prior to the wedding day, ensuring these things, that her purity remained and he protected her. And then he would bring the bride to the groom. It's a beautiful picture of John's ministry, isn't it? It's a beautiful illustration that he's delivering Jesus' people to him. He's keeping their purity and he's bringing them to the groom. And it's, it's joyful for him to fulfill this role. It should be the same for us to fulfill that role of pointing people to Christ. It should be incredibly joyful to us when we see another one call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. The Baptist uses this illustration to show the joy that he has in being the friend of the groom, protecting his bride and ensuring her purity as she is handed over to her loving husband. John knows his role. He knows his calling. He knows his vocation. This is what he was created and gifted to do, this task. Practically now looking at at our lives, we are also called and gifted Your life is not meaningless. It's filled with purpose. You're gifted also in in roles and and in your vocation, in your work. That's what vocation means in its original context. It's a calling. It's my calling to something. And in this day and age, oftentimes we, we don't view our jobs as a calling, but they are. It's no accident, family, that you work where you do. Our vocations range from this stay-at-home mom to teacher to school lunch ladies to retail workers to truck drivers, salesmen, medical professionals, and vocational ministers as myself. And let me make this very clear. My job is not more spiritual than yours is. Mine is not more sacred than yours is. They're all sacred. Because it's our calling and vocation and they're acts of worship for the Lord. Where we increase Christ and we decrease. These are our callings, our roles. We have a role to play and God has entrusted this to us. This is our high calling. Ultimately though, we all play a similar role to the Baptist in that we are not Jesus and we're joyful each and every time someone is brought into a reconciling relationship with him. It's like when we see someone baptized in here, we erupt in applause though. It's a beautiful day when we witness another lost soul, one for the kingdom of God. Through this, through faithful evangelism and prayer and proclamation of the gospel. This is our role. We must decrease so that he increases. Paul speaks of this role, I think, in calling and gifting in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. He says this, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do this, to equip the saints. I want to pause there. Saints, who are the saints? If you're in Christ, you are a saint. It's not some sort of special designation that the church can hand out. Through faith and confidence in the finished work of Jesus, you are a saint. We are equipping the saints. The leaders of the church equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. What does that look like? Paul tells us, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain this, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, hear this, to mature manhood, ladies, womanhood also, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
so that we may no longer be, this is the result, so that we will no longer be like children tossed to and fro, get the picture there, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, every new teaching, everything in the world tries to woo you away from Christ's love with, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, this, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. Who's the head? Into Christ. Thank you, Mike. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is here, working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful passage. If, if we were to draw out an org chart, like you, you go to companies that have an org, organizational chart, uh, at the top of North Bullet Christian Church's org chart would be Jesus Christ the head. John here, looking back to John 3, he's giving us just a small glimpse of Paul's later statement. He knows his role. He knows it is from above. It is a calling. He knows that he must point others to Jesus for the sake of the world and the, and the health of his own followers. God has uniquely called and gifted leaders in the church. He calls them here in Ephesians 4, teachers and shepherds to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is their calling to strive. And this is our job as leaders in the church. And it should be the job of every Christian in here to strive and contend for maturity in the faith. John the Baptist is an incredible example of maturity here. He could have succumbed to the lure of power of drawing people to himself, but he doesn't. He decreases and he points everyone to Christ. And we are to be joined together in unity, growing in every way under this, under the headship of Christ. He's above all things. His headship here shows us his active, incre- actively increasing his glory and fame in this present time. It, simply put, hear this, we all have a role and part to play and this calling is from above. Obey the Lord in the role and gifting that he has entrusted to you. Okay, own your path. Own the role and calling that God has placed on your life. We worry too much about what everybody else is doing. Worry about yourself and what the Lord has entrusted to you. Point number three, the Baptist does this. It's the high point of the passage. The Baptist brings clarity on Jesus's superiority, that Jesus is above all things, that he is highly exalted, that he is over all, that he's our king. We call him King Jesus. It says this in verse 30 to 36, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So that's speaking of humans, of people like John the Baptist. He who comes from heaven, this is speaking of Jesus, is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives. Okay, I want to pause there. That's a figure of speech. Obviously, people have received Jesus. We're receiving Jesus. Yet no one receives his testimony. It says this, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal. What does that mean to set his seal? Uh, at this time, some, not everybody could write, so they had a seal, a stamp, where they would uh, stamp their name. I approve of this. It, we can think of it as our signature. We sign a signature, approving and connecting ourselves. It's almost like a contract or a covenant. 
Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal, signs their name on the line to this. This is what we do. That God is true. For he whom God has sent, that is Jesus, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. In Jesus, the, let me pause there. In Jesus, the Spirit came and remained on him. We learned that the last time we talked about John the Baptist. And Jesus is full of the Spirit. It's without measure. He's full of the Spirit. And I love this ending section. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That should inspire great confidence, that statement there alone. That's a whole sermon in and of itself. We used to sing that song, he's got the whole world in his hands. We can think of that picture here. The Father has given all things into the hand of the Son, Jesus. And the result of that is this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, has life in abundance. That's the picture there. And then there's a warning. We can't skip over the warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John's gospel is such a beautiful book of Scripture. Every passage, every story, every piece of history woven together to point us to this, the beautiful truth of the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the good news about Jesus Christ and what he's done. The beautiful truth of redemption through Jesus Jesus gives us this, family. He gives us purpose in the immediate. He shows us the importance of this present life. And he does that also by lifting our eyes to the future and seeing his glorious second coming. He will make all things new. A new creation comes in. The new heavens and new earth are brought about. In the Christian life, we cannot be short-sighted. We must continue to press on towards the prize, towards the restoration of all things. I believe this this message is, is needed, especially in this time. Why? Just hang in here with me for a few more minutes. It's going to get a little hot, okay? I'm just telling you guys. This message is needed, especially in this time. We have witnessed a significant rise in immoral lifestyles in our nation. Darkness and disobedience. The local church hasn't been above those things. We've seen scandal after scandal Famous church leader after famous church leader falling into moral failures. Cover-up of sexual abuse in the church. Horrendous. Disgusting. Darkness and disobedience. Every wind of doctrine floating about. And especially this false doctrine. I think it infects so much of our culture. Is this false god of individualism. It's all about me. The world revolves around me. We hear it in, the, in these cultural mantras, like, you do you, right? You heard that one? You do you. Here's another one. Your truth is your truth, but my truth is my truth. Follow your heart. I know we've all heard that one. The Bible has something to say about the heart. If it feels good, do it. 
whatever makes you happy. But John gives us this. He must increase, and I must decrease. John's joy is found in the Lord, pointing the bride to the bridegroom. And this is, is true joy, is true calling, true happiness, true purpose. Life that is really life. John says, my joy is now what? It's complete. Here's the truth. The, these cultural mantras that I've said, the, you do you, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, follow your heart. If it feels good, do it. Whatever makes you happy, they will always leave you searching and seeking and never able to fill the void that is in your heart. I'm going to go as far as to say this. These statements that we have that float around in our culture like that are lies from the pit of hell. Because you, your purpose is never fulfilled. You're always searching and longing for that next thing, for that next encounter, that next feeling of exhilaration. But all of them pale in comparison to being found in Christ Jesus. Because that hole in your heart is still empty when you're seeking for fulfillment and all those things that just leave you more messed up and more longing more longing for something better. And we have the answer in the church and we have to boldly proclaim this as the light of Christ in the world that Jesus Christ has come and he saves us from sin and death. In Jesus, we have this. We have life that is really life. Christ, it said here, he has the spirit without measure. Those who humble themselves before our holy God and call upon his name will be reconciled. That's what God's word says. Will be given this, a measure of the spirit of God, gifted in Jesus, called, filled with God's Holy Spirit to be transformed and walk in his ways. To flee from darkness and sin and to live life that is truly life and have a, we get this, we have a joy that is complete. Who wants a joy like that? I do. Ultimately, being found in Christ, we we begin to enjoy our eternity in the present, eternal life, life in abundance. That's the picture of that word. We're connected to the true vine. We walk in the purpose we were created for, which is to glorify the Lord. But that's the good news. As much as I want to, I want to skip the last part of this section. I don't want to talk about the wrath of God. But it's not about me. It's about the truth of God's word. Said here, the last part of verse 36, whoever does not obey the son, this is the warning, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That's terrifying. Those who continue in disobedience to the Son, the wrath of God surely awaits. 
The Bible later, say, later says in, in the book of Hebrews, I want to say Hebrews 10, author of Hebrews is, is talking about God's judgment, and then he makes this statement. He says this. He says, it is, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That should just make us shudder. One, if you're a Christian in, the, in this room and you hear that statement, man, that should charge us up. Because we have a reconciling message that can save people from that. We're God's messengers in, in a broken and dark time to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ. That's our role, to pray and proclaim. And in light of that last statement there at the end of this passage, as we wrap up, I hate to leave you heavy, but sometimes we just need to be left with that weight on our shoulders in light of what it says there. If you sit here among us today, I plead with you. If you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, and he will save you. Turn from your sin follow after him. He will give you the gift of life. He will fill you with his Holy Spirit. He will transform your life and give you a purpose to walk all of your days in abundance of life. Amen.